Well, welcome to Carmelite Conversations. This is Frances Harry, your host. I want to thank you for joining me. Um, we have another wonderful Carmelite Conversations coming um, as a uh, follow-up to a previous one that we had with Tim Beat, um, a poet himself, talking about poetry and the poetry of John of the Cross in particular. And so we have a lot more to discuss about that and share with you. So I've invited him back. And so we're going to have fate part two of, of two parts on poetry and St. John of the Cross. And I think it's um, wonderful to consider John of the Cross this time of year because uh, we're making these podcasts during the Advent season and in the week leading up to St. John of the Cross's feast day, which is December the 14th. So we ask you and invite you to join with us in celebrating um, St. John of the Cross and all that he has to share. You know, he's a doctor of the church and he has much to teach us about prayer, about God's love and loving God in return. So I want to start with an opening prayer as we normally do. And this is going to be, sorry, I bet you heard that doorbell. Uh, we're doing this podcast from my home and I think there's a deliverer. And it depends on if that doorbell rings again, so sorry about that. Yeah, okay. Um, we'll just pretend it was a bell ringing and angel got their wings, right, <laughs> as we go into prayer. Okay, let's get recollected, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer uh, from the words of St. John of the Cross, from his maxims and counsels. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh, how sweet your presence will be to me, you who are the supreme good. I must draw near you in silence and uncover my feet before you, that you may be pleased to unite me to you in marriage, and I will not rest until I rejoice in your arms. Now I ask you, Lord, not to abandon me at any time in my recollection, for I am a squanderer of my soul. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You know, it, it, it occurs to me, that last line, do not abandon me at any time in my recollection, for I am a squanderer of my soul. What a good prayer to pray as we, we go into prayer, right? So thank you, St. John of the Cross, for sharing your prayers with us so that we may grow. Well, now I just a little recap on our guest, Tim Beat. Um, he is a definitively promised discast Carmelite secular in the community of our Mother of Good Counsel in Dayton, Ohio. Um, he's an excellent person to talk about poetry of St. John the Cross because he himself has published um, some books on poems um, that he has written, and I want to tell you the title so uh, you can look them up. One, my favorite, um, is The Raw Stillness of Heaven. Well, it's my favorite because that poem in that book is my, one of my favorites. And then the second book, Wanderings of an Ordinary Pilgrim. I think that's from his pilgrimage to Avila. Maybe. Correct. All right. Okay. So welcome, Tim. How, how happy I am to have you with me again today. It's always great to be here. Well, we have a lot to talk about, so let's get right at it. Um, we had talked a great deal about poetry and John the Cross. So I'm going to start with this question. Why do you think so many Carmelites write poetry? Well, as, as a poet myself, I, I've written poetry, I read a lot of poetry, and it's occurred to me that so many of the contemplatives, both Carmelites and um, 
other saints write poetry. And I thought, why is that? Is there some connection between contemplative prayer and, and poetry? And if so, what is the link? Um, and what I think the link is between what um, John called secret wisdom, secret wisdom that God um, gives us in our soul, and what Jacques Maritain, who was a Catholic philosopher and who wrote extensively about beauty, calls creative intuition. Um, and so let, let me tell you what I mean by, or what John meant by secret wisdom. Okay. Um, so John was reluctant to provide the commentary for his poems, as many Carmelites. They yeah. did that out of obedience. Somebody asked them to do it. They didn't just and, sit down and say, I'm going to write a commentary. Right. Uh, Thankfully, the nuns persuaded they, him. Right. Yay. Thank you, nuns. <laughs> right. And, and mo most of what we're going to talk about today in the quotes I use are from the collected works of St. John of the Cross by ICS Publications. And th this is what um, it says in the collected works about the living flame of love. It says, John here describes and gives witness to this mystical experience taking place in his deepest center. The subject matter is exalted, so much so that John dares speak of it only with a deeply recollected soul. Mm. So he's writing about things that are, are tough to write about, experiences that, of God um, that are, are very difficult to, uh, to put into words. And um, with a living flame of love, he wrote the commentary at the urging of um, Donna Anna de Penalosa, um, who was a laywoman whom he had um, given spiritual direction for and who had housed the Carmelite nuns while they were building a convent. So it wasn't, there's no poet that I know that sits down and writes commentaries about their poems. And one of the reasons for that is sometimes you write a poem and you're not, you, even yourself, you know that the meaning is more than the poem. And this happens a lot. There were, I've had um, poems in my collections that I almost didn't put in. I really didn't, wasn't thrilled with them. And then somebody else will read them and say, oh, I was in tears. This is what that meant to me. Hmm. And so sometimes the poet doesn't even know how God will communicate through that. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm sure when you think about the Gospels, surely the writers of the Gospels couldn't have known everything and the mm -hmm. impact of those. Now, they, they knew what it meant to them, but it's so much more as it speaks to us to this day. And I think poetry often works the same way. And doesn't it sometimes happen? I mean, I, I'm speaking from a musician's point of view. You know, sometimes when we're performing a piece of music, you know, you can play it rudimentarily, you know, just, you know, the notes on the page and stuff. But then, you know, as you become a, a more practiced and professional musician, um, there is a certain beauty and there's certain nuances that come out that make a big difference. Um, and one is, is beautiful music and one is just notes on a page, so to speak. So doesn't it also happen when you're writing poetry that sometimes a phrase or a word just, just comes into your mind? It's not like you were like, well, what word can I use? But, but it just, all of a sudden this phrase, this beautiful phrase comes out. Does that happen to you? Yeah. It, it often happens. And sometimes you look at the phrase and you know what it means and you wonder, will anybody else even know what that means? But it, it, and that's what we're going to talk about today. How does that creative process work? And what is, is there a link between that and, um, and prayer? And I think that there is. I mean, God has blessed us in so many ways as humans, both with bodies and mind and intellect and with these creative things, with, with beauty. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why it's so amazing to see a musician. Like I remember seeing Yo-Yo Ma play the cello one time. And 
with his eyes closed the whole time. It was one of the most beautiful things. He was in another place. Yes, oh yes. Oh, and, and you're watching this and you're thinking, this is not about just playing the notes. There is something inside him. It was so beautiful mm -hmm. um, to watch. Yeah. And that experience, and you know when you watch him, this isn't just like playing a pop tune or, or you know something off right, the radio. Right, there's a lot of intensity and then relaxation and... And stretching out the phrases and, and just floating right. senses. Yeah. And God through that beauty. In all beauty, we, we see God or should see God, whether it's natural beauty, whether it's it's music or um, the other arts. And I think Pope Francis has called on artists and musicians and all of the creative arts to to help humanity to lift their hearts to the Lord through their art rather than using art to bring us down. You right, know, so. right. So John, John talks about this secret wisdom and um, in the, uh, the Dark Night of the Soul, he writes about the communication between God and the soul. Um, and this is, again, in, from the collected works. And John's using some biblical examples um, to talk about this concept. And he writes... Jeremiah shows clearly that the soul is purged by the illumination of this fire of loving wisdom. For God never bestows mystical wisdom without love, since love itself infuses it. Where he says, he sent fire into my bones and instructed me. And David says that God's wisdom is silver tried in the fire, that is, in the purgative fire of love. This contemplation infuses both love and wisdom in each soul according to its capacity and necessity. It illumines the soul and purges it of its ignorance. The, this communication is like that of a ray of sunlight shining through many windows placed one after the other. Although it is true that the, it, it, although it is true that of itself the ray of light passes through them all, nevertheless each window communicates this light to the other with a certain modification according to its own quality. And so this is what, it's it's a hard concept because we're talking about, about contemplation infusing both love and wisdom right. at the same time. Because God is both love um, and wisdom. What a beautiful concept. And this is what, what as John talks about, this secret wisdom, um, that's what kind of what the whole concept is that he's trying to communicate. Well, let's elaborate more on why he calls it secret. I think John gives us some good instruction on that. Right, right. So um, John writes, um, th th this is from the collected works and some of the commentary. First, it calls this dark contemplation secret, since, as we mentioned, contemplation is mystical theology, which theologians call secret wisdom in which St. Thomas says is communicated and infused into the soul through love. This communication is secret and dark to the work of the intellect and the other faculties. Insofar as these faculties do not acquire it, but the Holy Spirit infuses it and puts it in, the, in order in the soul. As the bride says in the Song of Songs, the soul neither knows nor understands how this comes to pass. So this is a really complicated thing. It, it's having a knowledge and experiences love that we can't understand and we don't even know how it came to be, which mm -hmm. is so different from our physical lives where if something happens, you know, if, if uh, your mailbox got knocked over, you know that a car hit it and you can <laughs> and understand these deductive things. Deductive reasoning, R logic. Right. <laughs> so um, he's talking about a wisdom that, uh, that nobody really can um, understand. And um, the, the collected works continue. 
Contemplation is called secret not only because of one's inability to understand, but also because of the effects it produces in the soul. The wisdom of love is not secret merely in the darkness and straits of the soul's purgation, for the soul does not know how to describe it, but also afterward in the illumination when it is communicated more clearly. So this is something that the soul does not know how to describe. Um, so it, as we look at... Uh, this wisdom and poetry, poetry is often used to describe things that we don't know have another way to describe, right. as is music in, in, um, in many of the arts. And so it's really a, really a beautiful thing that way. Um, and so it continues, not only does a person feel unwilling to give expression to this wisdom, but one finds no adequate means or simile to signify so sublime an understanding and delicate a spiritual feeling. It is not clothed in any sensory species or image. The imaginative faculty cannot form an idea or picture of it in order to speak of it. Yet the soul is clearly aware that it understands and tastes this delightful and wondrous wisdom. What a beautiful thing. So it's, it's, a, it's one of those things where you know, you know in your heart that... Um, that uh, how merciful God is. But you, mm -hmm. if somebody asked you, well, tell me how you experienced that, you could say, well, God is merciful, but it really doesn't do th that. The, it's so much deeper than that. Right. Uh, in your so soul. you can have knowledge, but be, not be able to articulate. And then there's other people that are not studied at all, but they're very wise. You know, so the scripture passage about being the wisdom of babes, um, of children, um, how true. And, and so here is another sense of it. Right. And that we, it's not our senses and the way we normally look at, at knowledge, it doesn't really pertain right. um, to this, which is hard today because if you're having a discussion with somebody about a theological topic and um, you know that something is true, but you can't really express it to them in that way because God has been in your soul, um, has taught you this, but it doesn't work to easily to communicate um, to some else and that's where I think so many of the arts come in mm -hmm. we, we can express it we want to express it and so how does it come out if it can't come out in just a, like a plain description it comes out in beauty and mm -hmm. all these other things that, uh, that come yeah come I can even this. imagine that in dance there's the, the certain movements and uh, that they do that conveys certain emotions or uh, you know, it just takes you to a place that maybe you don't frequent very often. And, and that's the beauty of arts, that they take us beyond ourselves. And that's what prayer does. It takes us beyond ourselves to this realm um, of, of God, which, you know, unless our spirit, unless our soul is purified and uh, gives room for the spirit to resonate in God, then, you know, it, it, we take practice We'll miss it if we don't work at this. Prayer is work, but it's also a, a joy. And, you know, that's one thing we never want to give up is prayer. Uh, this is our one uh, sure way to connect with the Lord. And, and as humbly as we go to it with what we speak or feel, uh, the Lord takes it and he's always trying to bring us closer, always. And so a normal... Uh, development of prayer would progress 
from an from an outward vocal type of prayer to a more interior, more passive, more silent prayer. Um, so if you're not experiencing that kind of prayer, you need to be, you know, thinking about how, you know, there are techniques to prayer, but, you know, the prayer is actually, you know, the conversation with the Lord and the being with the Lord. That's the prayer. But um, sometimes we have to change the way we pray because uh, the way we're praying is routine, monotonous, and so we need to change it up a little. And that's why we're so rich. We have so many different ways. Oh, that's another hmm. podcast, right? Well, I think, <laughs> Sorry. Princess, that's why when you, when, uh, one of the things I love that St. Teresa of Avila said when people said, well, how, how do you pray? And she said, I look at him and he looks at me. <laughs> what more can you say yeah. th- th- than that? How deep a prayer that is. Well, that's not a lot of words w- w- in the, either the description or in the prayer itself. Yeah, because it's we, not empty. We gaze at each other. Yeah. That's, there's a real beauty and, um, and fullness. a truth in that. And a very fullness. Fullness, right. attentiveness. Right. Presence. But if you said, well, describe what that's like, she would say, I, you know, I don't know. We gaze at each. It's it's like when you think about um, being in love with somebody and you do that. You can tell when you see two people who are in love right. the way that they <laughs> they look at each other, but they might not be able to articulate what that is. But you can tell by looking at them. Yeah. So you have a another quote there, I believe, that kind of sums up this wisdom. It says, since the wisdom of this contemplation is the language of God to the soul, of pure spirit to pure spirit, all that is less than spirit, such as the sensory, fails to perceive it. Consequently, this wisdom is secret to the senses. They have neither the knowledge nor the ability to speak of it, nor do they even desire to do so because it is beyond words. Right. Well, that helps to explain why we so seldom talk about our personal spiritual experiences to others, doesn't it? I think it really does. And um, there's part of the dark night of the soul about that. I, when, when I first joined Carmel, I did think it was a little bit odd. Um, you have all these people that are praying all the time, but it's so hard to communicate. You, have the, you know you have this bond in common, um, but people aren't talking a lot about you know prayer experiences and things. And part of that is because of what we just read. How would we explain it? The beautiful thing about being a, a Carmelite community is you know you have that bond. Right. You know, so you, it's we can look at each other and we know you have that bond, but to actually articulate it is impossible because right. it's this wisdom, that this interior wisdom that God has been able to um, give to us that our, our senses can't mm-hmm. understand what it is. Yeah, so we have this spiritual familiarity, but... Uh, you know, and I think a lot of people don't speak about it because, you know, they're practicing humility. Um, and another reason would be because John the Cross teaches us not to put a whole lot of stock into it, that, you know, the graces come in the moment. And then additionally, I think that sometimes to share it um, openly with everybody seems to invade the intimacy of this of this yes, experience and yes. so I, I'm thinking of Therese a little flower so she didn't she didn't want to say you know she talked about the blessed mother's smile and how she was healed by that smile and yet then you know the word got out to the nuns um, in the convent and when Teresa went there they asked her a million questions and then she's like well now I'm starting to doubt my experience you know so it, it kind of 
dirtied up the the experience. It cheapens it, yeah. It's, it's or, very or it put intimate. it in a perspective that was worldly rather than what where it was. So so a lot of times you want to really guard these experiences, and and they're private, they're secret. So. Right. And then in Dark Night of the Soul, it says, we understand then why some persons who tread this road and desire to give an account of this experience to their director, meaning their spiritual director. As they should. For they are good and God-fearing, are unable to describe it. They right. feel great repugnance in speaking about it, especially when the contemplation is so simple that they are hardly aware of it. All they can manage to say is that they are satisfied, quiet, and content and aware of God. And in their opinion, all goes well. But the experience is ineffable. And one will hear from the soul no more than these general terms. Pure contemplation is indescribable, as we said. And on this account, called secret. It's secret because if you can't tell anybody about it, I guess that's pretty, <laughs> pr pretty secret. But it, what, what a beautiful thing. And not, um, as you said, not just the, the, we're not talking about consolations, about just having, um, you know, positive experiences. But it's that um, wisdom that God is so real yes. and so powerful, whether it's that's in um, joy or in pain, that experience. It's almost like you can feel your soul, I would say. You know, we know that we're human, but, it, but in that contemplation, we know that we're spirit mm -hmm. in such a deep, deep way. Yeah, beautifully put. So, of course, that's... Probably why John was reluctant to write commentaries, right? I, I think so. Um, God gives this knowledge to the soul that can't be expressed in human terms. And it's interesting. Um, John says that the soul is clearly aware that it understands and tastes that delightful and wondrous wisdom. But when asked to write a, a commentary, I have to believe that John was thinking, didn't you read Dark Night of the Soul? <laughs> Especially when, the, when it gets um, to Living Flame of Love. Because in Dark Night of the Soul, he said, the soul neither knows nor understands how this comes to pass. And he said, this wisdom is secret to the senses. They have neither the knowledge nor the ability to speak of it, nor do they even desire to do so because it's beyond words. And he said, we understand then why some people who tread this um, road and desire to give an account of this um, to their director are unable to describe it. So he says time and time again, I'm not going to be able to do this, but time and time again, people say, would you please do it? <laughs> <laughs> Teach us anything about this. We want to learn. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with them. <laughs> and, you know, I, in a way, having written poetry myself, when John was asked to write the commentary, like for Living Flame of Love, um, it may have been like writing a, writing a commentary on a poem he didn't write. And I say that because even when, um, when I'll write poetry, oftentimes the meaning is is broader than what I know as the author of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think when he went back to that, um, he certainly wasn't thinking about 90 pages of commentary when he wrote the poem. But when he goes back to it, it brings him back internally where there's, there's all of this, well, this secret wisdom and all of these um, other things. So in a way, it expresses all of his faith in this relationship. It's a beautiful thing, but it, it can be kind of strange going back. And he may have been saying, well, what did I mean by that? It came out on paper, but what does um, this mean? And it becomes broader and broader. I mean, I, I, as a poet, you couldn't have 70 pages of commentary in your mind while you're writing a, a few lines. So even that's kind of a mystical experience a little bit for him to go back. And it says in a couple places that... Um, he, got, he digressed a little bit. He would get off on tangents because 
he summed up in Living Flame of Love, such a, a beautiful poem, this divine intimacy that he had. Right. That, that included everything. What could you, you know, he could go on writing for the rest of his life about that, I think. Right. Okay, so I guess that leads to this next question. You had mentioned, I think briefly, um, creative intuition. Can you comment on how you understand creative intuition? So um, for a, a poet, the creative intuition, it translates this inexpressible wisdom given to the soul into words that the poet, as I said, may or may not understand. Um, and that's um, what I'm not, I'm not saying that John didn't understand his poem, right. but that the poem um, couldn't contain all of the understanding that he had experienced in his soul. And this is a concept, um, as I mentioned before, that uh, Jacques Maritain um, wrote extensively about. And Jacques Maritain was um, a French Catholic ph um, philosopher. He was raised Protestant. He was agnostic before converting to Catholicism in 1906, and he wrote more than 60 books, um, a lot on um, creativity and uh, beauty. Those are some of the things that he's um, he's most uh, known for. Um, and uh, so as he wrote about um, this, he was interested in this creative process. Um, and he wrote, one of his books was, or essays was, The Range of Reason. And I'd like to just give kind of a quote from Jacques Maritain. And this is what he said. To begin with, I shall refer to a basic distinction made by Thomas Aquinas when he explains that there are two different ways to judge of things pertaining to a moral virtue. Fortitude, for instance. On the one hand, we can possess in our mind moral science, the conceptual, the rational knowledge of virtues, which produces in us a merely intellectual conformity with the truths involved. Then if we are asked a question about fortitude, we shall give the right answer by merely looking at and consulting the intelligible objects contained in our concepts. A moral philosopher may possibly not be a virtuous man, but yet know everything about virtue. Right. So this is a, a, a head book knowledge. knowledge, head yeah. knowledge, right. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we can possess the virtue in question in our own powers of will and desire have it embedded in ourselves and thus be in accordance with it or co-natured with it in our very being. Then if we are asked a question about fortitude, we shall give the right answer no longer through science, but through intuition by looking at and consulting what we are and the inner bents or propensities of our own being. A virtuous man may possibly be utterly ignorant in moral philosophy and know as well, probably better, everything about virtues. And this is a key here. It is not rational knowledge through the conceptual, logical, and discursive exercise of reason, but it is really and genuinely knowledge through obscure and perhaps incapable of giving account of itself or being translated into words. And doesn't that sound this? So it's a knowledge that is obscure and incapable of being giving account of itself or being translated into words. And doesn't yeah. that sound very infused. similar infused. yeah yeah um in, infused and so uh here's here's a, a real key from what maritain writes he said saint thomas explains in this way the difference between the knowledge of divine reality acquired by theology and the knowledge of divine reality by mystical experience so here's and with john we get both i think <laughs> yes <laughs> so, right we um we we do. but and john said 
as John said, there were, there were different things. This knowledge of mystical experience, just as real as the intellectual knowledge, but different. It's a different um, kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, you talk about how God can be known through theology, um, for example, through commentary, as well as through experience, such as poetry. So it's like you've got head knowledge on one hand, and on the other hand, heart knowledge. And, and so to have them together, that's just a, such a beautiful gift. Um, and I think prayer opens us up to unite those two in, in, in a, in, as well as study. You know, that's why um, in our communities we have formation. And it's not just to gain knowledge, but it is to be formed. So it's taking the knowledge and embracing it and living it. So that you're you're trying to combine this sense right. of, of right. head and heart knowledge. I remember at one of our days of recollection, I forget who the friar was, but there was a discussion about our formation process, the study that we do and everything. And he said, that's very important. But he said, the real formation comes in silence. Mm -hmm. In prayer. In prayer. That's where right. they, they go together. But... If all you have is the book knowledge, mm -hmm. that's not enough. We're we, right. we, we need to gaze at Christ so that Christ can gaze at us. That's the re where the real formation goes right. on. So um, Maritain does talk about, um, about poetry, and he says that poetry wants to speak, whereas mystical experience, because it emanates from the deepest longing of the spirit bent on knowing, tends of itself towards silence and internal fruition. Yeah. Now, doesn't that sound like what John said, where um, that we don't want to speak about these mystical experiences, but on the other hand, the poetry um, wants to speak where the mystical experience does not want to speak. Yes, I think you said, uh, John said about mystical experience, this wisdom is secret to the senses. They have neither the knowledge nor the ability to speak of it, nor do they even desire to do so because it is beyond words. So the spirit tends towards science. And right. And so as I read these, I thought, boy, they're even using the same language. Where's the connection here? And uh, Maritain continues about poetry, saying that poetic knowledge is non-conceptual and non-rational knowledge. It is essentially an obscure revelation both of the subjectivity of the poet and of some flash of reality coming together out of sleep in one single awakening. Mm -hmm. It causes the intellect obscurely to grasp some existential reality. I thought, it sounds like they're talking about something that is, um, is similar, maybe because he was a, you know, a, a philosopher and um, a, a theologian um, as well. But I think what Maritain is saying is that the poet does not understand this creative intuition that they have. In a similar way, that, I would say it's a gift, you know. Right. And 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 it develops as it's used, just as any talent. Right. right? It, as he says, it's an obscure revelation. It's a, a flash of reality, and so this creative intuition, similar to the the infused or secret wisdom, happens without our understanding of how or why it works. So we have two things that are connected. Neither of which we really understand. Talk <laughs> about a complicated thing. But I know <laughs> you're you're a musician. You know that experience where you're where you're playing music and um, you're living it, in the music. Yeah, it's it's a it, it's like you're one with the music. It's a very yeah, you're one with the music. That's right. It's a it's, it's a it's very a different, different experience. experience. And and uh, um, to me, because of the beauty in that, it's a sometimes that can be kind of a holy experience. There's as oh, you said yes. before. There's a uh, as a musician. There's a prayerfulness 
and a sacredness in doing that. And a great example of that is St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. She was a very accomplished, award-winning pianist. And she used a lot of musical terms um, in the things that she wrote about prayer, you know, striking a chord of, of this union, having the melody um, and this symphony. Uh, I mean, just to, if you go and read her, you'll, you'll notice some musical terms that she uses, and, and it's that, um, that artistic beauty that is coming out through her prayer. Right. It's beautiful. Because who gave us the, the artistic talent? Yes. It's a, it's a, God has given us all these talents to love other people. And on the, the artistic side, that's a gift to glorify God. It's a, it's, so it's a beautiful thing as you're glorifying God, the musician, the artist is, is connected to God in that right. way. Right. All right, so tell us how creative intuition is connected to the concept of infused wisdom or secret wisdom. So what, one of the books that Meriton wrote was Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry. And he writes there, what matters to us is the fact that there exists a common root of all of the powers of the soul, which is hidden in the spiritual unconscious, and that there is in the spiritual unconscious a root activity in which the intellect and the imagination as well as the powers of desire, love, and emotion are engaged in common. And he continues, poetry is the fruit of neither it, poetry is the fruit neither of the intellect alone nor of the imagination of alone. Nay more, it proceeds from the totality of man, sense, imagination, intellect, love, desire, instinct, blood and spirit together. And the first obligation imposed on the poet is to consent, consent to be brought back to the hidden place near the center of the soul where this totality exists in a state of creative source. Right. Isn't that amazing? It is. <laughs> and, and so as we, as we look at this connection, you have the contemplative who is praying all the time, whose first obligation is to consent to be brought back to this hidden place to the center of the soul. Right. And Maritain is saying that's the same thing for the, for the poet, for the artist. Uh, yes, and I think that would apply to painters, yes. uh, any kind of, of visual arts, um, the musical arts. Um, yes. Right. So the, there's a, be, because they have this same, the, the same source, and oftentimes we don't talk about creativity in this way as, kind right. of a, as a spiritual activity, but this creative intuition, what he's saying is, is a gift that God has given artists in a way to get to um, to connect to the soul, as is yeah, contemplation. So, a, so if you have both of those, one of the things I think happens is you see the poetry come out of these people who have that inclination because they're spending the, the place that feeds the artist mm -hmm. is also the place that God is feeding the soul. Yeah, so it's like a conduit that opens right. you up to the bigger right. um, ocean of divine love. Right, and as I mentioned before, Meriton says poetry wants to speak. So we said we have this unspeakable knowledge, but the poetry wants to speak, and that's why oftentimes when I write poetry, it just comes out. Right. It's, it's like taking a, you know, a bucket of water and throwing it on the table. It just it, it pours out mm -hmm. all at once, and I can't really even describe what that experience is, um, is like exactly. It... Um, except that I don't know where it, it comes from. But mm -hmm. for me, when did I start to write poetry? It was only after I started to spend time in silence. Mm. 
in it, and I could not write. I could not not write poetry at that point. Wow, that's so, interesting. So it was very, yeah, it was very interesting. I thought, well, where I had been a writer before, but not a, a poet. Mm -hmm. And I thought, where does this come from? And um, it seemed to me that it came from spending that time in silence. Beautiful. And, you know, I think that applies to nature as well, because nature speaks volumes about God's glory. If we, you know, depending on how we look at it, because a lot of people pass it by. But if you look at it and you ponder it, 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 it speaks volumes. Right. Look at those sunsets. Look at the, the stars. When I was visiting my uh, family over Thanksgiving, we were out in a cabin in the woods in the Shawnee National Forest. And, oh, my gosh, the stars up at in this night sky where it was just like 10 times more stars than I can see here in Dayton. So I was like really amazed. Right. Well, we're seeing God's creation. Right. And there, there's beauty. So everything should lead us back to God. Right. So um, you have another quote here from Jacques Maritain. He said, Poetic knowledge is as natural to the spirit of man as the return of the bird to his nest. And it is the universe which, together with the spirit, makes its way back to the mysterious nest of the soul. Mm, beautiful. The soul is known in the experience of the world, and the world is known in the experience of the soul through a knowledge which does, which does not know itself. That's so really isn't that beautiful that we, we know the world through our soul? How can we know, see God's beauty in all these things if we're not looking at it through the eyes of the soul? Yeah, and unfortunately, people today are not even thinking of their soul and right. how sin covers their soul, blinds their soul, and and keeps them from receiving the blessings. It darkens it. Um, sin darkens the soul. So we really need to ponder this. And especially in the United States, you know, we're, we're such an intellectual society that sometimes we don't... Um, you know, we want to be scientific and prove things, and that's all great. Rationale. That, yeah, <laughs> that's a certain kind of wisdom, and it's an important kind of wisdom. But because of that, sometimes we discount the wisdom that can be found in beauty and, mm -hmm. and in the arts. It's a different kind of wisdom, but just as important, because otherwise we just become... Well, you know, I, everything is science. I even have to say more so, because it takes you beyond yourself. It takes you out there to, and it, and it raises your spirit, un, unlike other things. So, um, right. I'm gonna present my bias there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what does Marathon say about contemplatives? Uh, Carmelites so are known as contemplatives because we we practice prayer. We we ask discuss Carmelite seculars where. We have promised to pray at least 30 minutes a day and, and do morning prayer and evening prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours and um, go to Mass as frequently as we can and do the nightly examine all, all things that are important in developing this life of prayer. So, um, this, and this is where it really gets good to me. As I read Maritain, I it was kind of an epiphany to me um, because... How can the poet best enhance creative intuition? How can we become more creative? And Meriton says, in much the same way as contemplatives do. And he wrote, the poet can make himself better prepared for or available to it by removing obstacles and noise. So what does that say to me? <laughs> Detachment and silence. Mm -hmm. Well, how much detachment and silence? Boy, that sums up a lot of Carmelite spirituality um, in there. And he says um, he can guard and protect it and thus foster 
the spontaneous progress of its strength and purity in him. And when I read that, the, the removing obstacles and noise, I thought, he's, he's describing the spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think what he's saying is that to be a great artist, you have to um, focus on the spiritual life. And if you have the other gifts, the art will come. Right, because there is a definitely a focused concentration on the um, tools of the art that take you to a level that be, becomes the beauty. Right. And so it becomes more than what you um, what you were starting with, the, because it's the summation of all the elements together that that creates this that speaks beyond the immediate. Uh, tools. Right. So it's detachment and silence that form both the contemplative and the poet. And I think that's why we see so many contemplative poets. Now, that doesn't mean that they're good poets. I would not say that I'm a particularly good poet. Um, Or if you look at uh, Therese, she was not a particularly um, good poet, but she wrote a lot of poetry. Why? Because she had that contemplative spirit too. Mm -hmm. And And she had this wisdom and this experience of divine union that was unexpressible, and it flowed out of her in poetry. Mm-hmm. Which to me is such a, what a beautiful gift to have that it didn't have to be kind of cooped up. And with John, you get both where he was a beautiful poet. Right. Um, and it's just kind of awe-inspiring to read what he wrote. All right, so this concept of creative intuition um, is kind of difficult to grasp. I know we've been talking about it um, can you give us an example of how this intuition works in terms of virtue? Yeah, so let's look at courage, for instance. Um, as Meriton said, you know, there's this head learning. So we could provide a, a dictionary defini- definition of courage and um, the ability to do something that frightens you or strengthen the face of pain or grief. And we could discuss the definition. We could understand it. But then one day you see a burning building and there's a child shouting from inside and you dash inside the building and you find the child and bring her outside. And afterwards, somebody asks you how you had the courage to run into the building. And you say, I, I didn't think about it. I just did it. And um, the person says, well, didn't you think that you might be hurt? And you respond, all I remember was running into the building. I don't recall making a decision to do it. It just happened. I can't really describe how it happened. And I think all of us have some, especially as parents, some experience of that. You know, your child's falling and you um, you reach out to get them and it just kind of is that that uh, instinct. It's that that intuitive love inside us that, um, that comes out. And that, I would say that's the way creative intuition works. John is praying and a poem comes to him. He didn't sit down at his desk and think, today I will write a poem, what should it be about? He didn't likely think, um, boy, this mystical experience of God would be a good <laughs> topic for a tone. Right. Um, his experience of God burst forth as a poem, probably almost without his effort. It just came, and you say, "Well, John, how did you do that?" I don't know. Mm-hmm. It it was this creative intuition combined and with his contemplation right, and, and it just, just bursts forth yeah i was thinking of exuding you know it just it's like a fountain of life spewing out of you and you can't help it it's not like you contain it. it it this desire to do is so strong it, it, it's hard to stop 
Right. So you have to, it's just like people of, of deep prayer, they have to go out and do something um, because the love that they have gained through prayer from God results in the fruit of serving their neighbor, you know. So they're, they're excited about serving. Yes, uh, so yes. So it's a beautiful thing. And so John has this mystical experience that then comes out through his creative intuition as the poem. And that's why mystical poetry, I think, is such a useful gateway to prayer, to use in our prayer, whether it's the Psalms or um, things that John or others wrote. So the reader of a poem uses creative intuition to interpret and feel the poem, allowing us to experience in a small way something similar to the poet. And perhaps that's why so much of scripture is poetry in one form or another. The poem connects the poet to the reader. And so even today, John's poetry allows us to um, enhance that interior life. It's a gateway. It's a bridge to go back in. To me, personally, much more than even the commentary is. The commentary is, I, I enjoy reading the commentary on the poem, but the, the poem is so personal to him. Mm-hmm. And he, he's, uh, as Teresa said, I gaze at him and he gazes at me. That's really what John is saying. Come gaze, come, come inside here. It's nice to have the knowledge about what goes um, along with that. But it's that experience itself that can really draw us internally, partly because it's shorter too. You can read in just a minute or two um, The Living Flame of Love. What a beautiful way to take John's experience and make it your own. And that's part of that Carmelite heritage. We all know the same God. It's the mm-hmm. same God that, that John knew is our God. And so it's such a beautiful thing to be able to use his poetry and have that lead us into prayer. Well, of course, we don't all experience poetry in the same way, do we? No, that, that's one of the things that's uh, really kind of uh, mystical to me. Um, we don't experience contemplation in the same way or purgation or the secret wisdom. Um, God gives different things to different people in different ways. So not everybody will experience um, poetry in the same way. It, one person will read something will touch them, somebody else won't. Or sometimes you'll read a poem and it's nothing, and you go back to read it years later, and you think, why didn't it touch me the way that it, it touches now? The same with music. You might hear a song, and it really touches somebody in a deep way and, and um, not others. So I, I'm not sure why, that, why it works that way, but it seems like um, maybe it's because God is so intimate with us. It wouldn't be quite as intimate if everybody experienced it in the same way. It's something just between you and God. And as I said before, that's why it's so interesting to me. I've written poems that have touched other people more than they touched me. Mm-hmm. Well, how does that happen? Well, I don't know. It, it, except through this creative intuition and the mercy of God and working through us. Right. And a person's personal experience will accent something in a, a way that maybe the poet... Um, you know, hasn't experienced, and yet the word or the phrase or or just the the imagery evokes something deep within that person. And I can see where poetry can be a sense of of healing wounds and uh, lifting people out of darkness, out of depressions, out of uh, you know anger or anxiety, and bringing them to a place of peace. And of course, now I'm speaking of of, of more of these um, mystical poems. You know, um, we're not talking about poetry in general with all this. I mean, yes, in a sense, but 
I mean, there's fun poetry that's, you know, <laughs> like limericks and stuff, you know. Um, so I, I think we're, we're trying to apply this to John of the Cross. Mm -hmm. So that's the context. So to close, um, this has been a great conversation, but to close, uh, how about giving us a good tip for someone who's reading uh, a commentary such as The Living Flame of Love? What would you tell them? Well, I think what I would suggest is immerse yourself in the poem while reading the commentary. So if you're reading The Living Flame of Love as part of your formation process, for instance, in a secular community, don't just read the poem once and then read the commentary over the year or, or over six months. Read the poem every day before your 30 minutes of meditation. It only takes a minute or two. Read that poem and allow that to lead you into prayer. Let that poem be your prayer. Um, read the poem and share John's experience because I think the bottom line of that poem to me is the, all, all the commentary is interesting about how God works in this process. But to me, what God is really, or what John is really saying is God loves you and this divine union is possible and God longs to have that divine union with you and God's waiting for you in that silence. Whether you understand the commentary or not, you can experience that. And God's waiting for you. And let that poem bring you into God's silence. And that is a beautiful Advent message as well. So thank you, Tim. Um, you really helped us to appreciate poetry more, especially the poetry of St. John of the Cross and this creative intuition. And we're so grateful for this. And I'm so grateful that it's on a podcast so we can go back and listen to it again. And um, you've given us some really good advice. I hope our listeners will take you up on it. And, and I look forward to more conversations in the future. So thank you so much for being with us today. It's always great being here. Great. Well, let's close with a prayer then. These are, um, this is a, a short prayer, but it's from John of the Cross. Uh, so let us get recollected and gaze at the Lord within. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord my God, who will seek you with simple and pure love and not find you are all he desires? For you show yourself first and go out to meet those who desire you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining us on Carmelite Conversations. I hope and pray that you have a most blessed Advent and that, um, that you turn to St. John on the Cross to be a, an intercessor and an advocate for you in your um, prayer life and your desire to be in union with our Lord. And as we look uh, as the Bethlehem star gets closer to the place of our uh, Christ child's birth, um, I hope that you will see the light brighten within you, the, the eternal light of God's being. God bless you, and until we meet again, thank you.